Our dear Heavenly Father, Father, you've asked us in each our own way to serve you. That wasn't the condition for our salvation, and thankfully, Father, it was by grace alone. For we could never have met the terms that you demand. For righteousness escapes us. We were born into iniquity, Father, and we will live in that state, in a body that is doomed to die for the sake of sin, until the time you glorify us and bring us into your presence made new again. But yet, Father, while we are in this state of imperfection, saved by grace and made new in the Spirit while living in the old man, nonetheless, Father, you and your wisdom and in your mercy have found opportunities to make us useful to you. How is it, Father, that sinful flesh can glorify you? How could it be possible that the weak and the worthless can be made useful to the praise of your name? And yet, Father, you do that very thing. You ask each of us, Father, to serve you as a servant would give his life for his master, as you gave your life for us. And you ask us, Father, to serve you so that the things that you intend to accomplish could be done through us, not because of us, not by us, but through us. And through that work, Father, you offer an opportunity for us to receive blessing, spiritual blessing reserved for an inheritance that can never perish, And even now, Father, blessings of everyday life, the joy that it is to serve you. Lord, I look to the scriptures this morning under the tutelage of the Holy Spirit, asking that you would guide me so that I teach it properly. I ask, Father, that what we learn would inspire us to be better servants, to be more faithful, more obedient, to serve you with hearts that understand the importance of service. Guide us in all these things, Lord, as we sit at your feet. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Well, the foundation for our study of spiritual gifts has been set. Paul laid that foundation for us last week in the first seven verses of chapter 12. And if I can summarize briefly what we learned, we learned that our life of faith in the truth began with and is guided by the Spirit of God. And that same Spirit is at work in each of us granting us spiritual gifts. Furthermore, the body has been equipped with a variety of spiritual gifts intended for a variety of ministries. And that variety, we learned last week, is intended itself for the common good. Each gift in the body of Christ plays a role like an instrument in a symphony, creating a spiritual work that the Lord intends to accomplish by means of this body or any body. But no matter how different one gift might be from another within the body, we can be assured, Paul says, that they all originate from the same spirit. No one in the body of Christ receives more or less of God's spirit because God's spirit is indivisible. It's ever present. The question isn't, have you received the fullness of the spirit? The question is, what are you doing with what you have received? The question is, are you obeying? Are you living with the counsel of the spirit? Or are you living in the flesh? That's basically what we covered last week. Now, moving forward, Paul jumps into the next section of his discussion on gifts. Here we're looking at how gifts are experienced or manifested in the body of Christ. Today's lesson is going to be relatively focused. We're going to be looking exclusively today at the enumeration of gifts that Paul gives here at this point in the letter. Let's begin by backing up a few verses. We'll begin in verse 4. We'll read down to verse 11. Paul writes, now, 
there are varieties of gifts, but the same spirit. And there are varieties of ministries and the same Lord. There are varieties of effects, but the same God who works all things in all persons. But to each one is given the manifestation of the spirit for the common good. For to one is given the word of wisdom through the spirit and to another the word of knowledge according to the same spirit to another faith by the same spirit and to another gifts of healing by the one spirit and to another the effecting of miracles and to another prophecy and to another the distinguishing of spirits to another various kinds of tongues and to another the interpretation of tongues. But one and the same spirit work all these things, distributing to each one individually, just as he wills. So Paul explains we should expect to find a variety of gifts within the body of Christ. And we looked at this, as you know, last week, and we repeat it again for the sake of understanding it clearly today. All of what we see across the body of Christ in its variety is from the same spirit. That is a key point. One we'll come back to, as I've said on numerous occasions, the fact that I possess a different gift than you might is not proof that we have some different spirit or even a different measure of the spirit. Paul says those differences are planned and purposeful by the Holy Spirit. I do not have to feel like I'm somehow less of a Christian or that God is less pleased with me simply because I don't have your spiritual gift and vice versa. You don't feel cheated because God gave me a gift that you don't have. There is distribution of gifts for a reason. And in verse seven, Paul explains that whatever we have been given is necessary to assure the common good. A simple way of saying this is God knows what he's doing. As he gifts the body, he knows what he's doing. He knew who would gather in this particular building and make this church their home church. He knew it would happen. He knew when it would happen. He knew who would be here. And so he knew the gifts that he needed to give to those who would be present in order to have the right diversity to meet the needs that would be present. He equipped everybody in here with a gift, at least one. That is, assuming all have become believers in Jesus Christ. And he has given us the variety that we have collectively for our common good. Sometimes that equipping comes from within and sometimes it comes from outside the body. What do I mean? Well, within this room, we have a certain group of people. And within that group, we have a certain distribution of gifts. But there may be times when the needs of this body go outside the available gifts of those who gather inside these four walls. When and if that occurs, we can be sure that God has made some accommodation for our need through some outside source of gifting. Perfect example. My traveling to Hawaii in this particular case may be God's intention so that my gift of teaching can be useful to a body there that may not have all that they need concerning teaching at this point in time. Now, I am not going to become their main source of teaching, I would assume, and I am not there to try to fulfill that purpose. But point being, though, that augmenting one group with another group is natural. That's why Paul traveled. That's why we see men in the Bible traveling from place to place in the book of Acts. It's so that God can use the gifts of the body collectively across the world to further the needs of that same body. But generally, within one local instance of the body, we're going to find what we have in that body meeting our needs. Then in verses 8 through 10, Paul lists nine gifts here, nine gifts in the body. 
And so as we begin our look at these things, let's take a one by one look at each of these gifts. Let's consider each one in turn and just understand what they refer to. So first, Paul mentions the gift of wisdom. Now, wisdom is the ability to come to a spiritually mature perspective on current circumstances. That perspective then is offered to a leader or to the group in the church so that they might understand it also. So wisdom is a spiritually mature perspective on circumstances. Knowledge is the second one Paul lists. That refers to a true understanding of God revealed mysteries. Knowledge is different than wisdom in terms of time and scope. Wisdom is God-given maturity and insight about how we approach our world and our circumstances under some certain context, while knowledge is God-given insight about how we understand God and his mysteries and his purposes and his circumstances. So wisdom is making sense of our life, while knowledge makes sense of God, of his mysteries. I'll give you some examples from the Bible to make it even clearer. Joseph and Solomon would be men who demonstrated wisdom. Joseph knowing to store up and how to hand it back out. Solomon being wise in how to decide whose baby the baby was, whose mother was the real mother. Moses and David, on the other hand, demonstrated knowledge. They could reveal and explain God mysteries. In both cases, these gifts, whether knowledge or wisdom, they find their purpose for the common good in the way they enlighten and educate God's people. Here again, the point of the gift is to benefit the body, not to make one person look smarter than the rest. Not to make one person look wiser than the rest. The point of it, if it's being used properly, is we're all the wiser for it. We're all the smarter for it. We're all the more educated for it. That's wisdom and that's knowledge. Third on the list is faith. Now, we know from Ephesians 2, verses 8 and 9, that faith is a gift for every Christian in the sense of how we find our salvation as a measure of God's grace. But the spiritual gift of faith is something different. That refers to a supernatural trust in God coupled with a courage to act on that trust. We could say, for example, that Daniel's three friends, the ones who entered the fire, displayed the gift of faith because of their willingness to do so without Fear of the consequences. That's a gift of faith. Their faith was in what God would do for them should they enter the fire. Or Abraham, maybe the best example in the whole Bible. Abraham's willingness to take his son Isaac to the top of the mountain and sacrifice him is a act of faith in that he knew there were promises directed toward his son that could only be fulfilled if his son were to live. And so Hebrews says that Abraham went up that mountain with the intent to sacrifice Isaac because he trusted that God being faithful would resurrect Isaac if necessary in order to keep his promises. And he acted on the basis of that faith. That's a supernatural courage to act and trust in what God has said. Some of us have a greater measure of that than others. Fourth, there's healing. Healing is the supernatural power to end illness in the body instantly. Do not leave off the last word. Healing is the ability to supernaturally heal someone instantly. Progressive healing over time is not a manifestation of this gift. If I lay hands on someone and they get better after that, but they do it over some long period of time, how can we say that the result is the manifestation of a gift versus simply the natural immune system doing its job? We can't, which is why that's not a gift. 
because the purpose of the gifts, as we looked last week, is to do something that distinguishes from the natural so that the result is a praise to God. A recognition this is different than the average. An appreciation that God just did something in an unusual way through that person. Aha, that's a gift. And so the speed, the nature of the result is a part of the gift. Now, I don't want to be too dogmatic on this because you could come up with examples in which it's not so much the speed that makes it supernatural, but the very fact that the person could live at all. For example, you could have someone with terminal cancer and be well beyond anybody's reach in terms of medical science. And yet the cancer still goes away in the end as a result of someone's gift of healing. Even if that takes a period of time, we might still extend that to being supernatural because there was no other explanation for how it took place. We just need to be careful with that. There are more than enough ways in which I can abuse this particular gift if I let my definition become too liberal. For example, we know God does heal us in natural ways. When I find myself getting sick and then I find my body getting well later, that's no less God. God is the direct cause of all things. So I can't say, well, in some cases God healed me and in other cases I just got better. There's no separating those two. I simply want to make clear here that the gift of healing, like all spiritual gifts, must, by its nature, stand apart from natural forms or it doesn't serve the purpose of a gifting. It is by definition, a spiritual gift is by definition, a manifestation of God's power in a supernatural way. So the gift of healing will always be immediately recognizable as a work of the Spirit, either because of its speed or because, in some cases, it's a result that completely defies natural expectations. Interestingly, Paul describes this gift in the plural in Greek when it's written here in 1 Corinthians. In other words, it literally says gifts of healings in Greek. That would tell us that Paul means there are many different types of healing gifts, not just one monolithic singular gift of healing. So you may have the gift to heal a certain illness and someone else may have a gift to heal a totally different kind of problem and you can't heal that problem and they can't heal yours. That would be what Paul is implying. Some Christians debate today whether this gift still exists. And we'll come to this thought on numerous gifts here. But there are those in the church today that said, well, yeah, in the book of Acts and in the first century church, we see people getting healed all the time. But, you know, you don't really see that anymore. And because you don't see it anymore, it must not exist anymore. Well, first of all, the fact that you don't see it doesn't mean it doesn't exist. Exegetically speaking, the way we interpret scripture is not through personal experience. We interpret personal experience through scripture. Such that if scripture says something is true, it's true whether I see it or not, whether I experience it or not. Conversely, if the Bible says it's not true and I think I see it, I didn't see it. We interpret what we know by what it says, not the other way around. And so we know in the book of Acts, there were many occasions in which supernatural healing took place as a result of men laying on of hands. And in fact, in the case of Peter, just his shadow cast on you might cause you to be healed. Likewise, there is nothing in scripture that you or I could find that states that this gift stopped at any point in history. There's no statement to that effect. There's no point in the Bible where it says this is for only this group and never again. So it's hard to make any conclusion based out of Scripture that it doesn't exist. Furthermore, it's hard to say how common it is. The Bible records notable moments in church history, but it doesn't record everything. I don't know how common it was in the early church. I know the book of Acts records it frequently, but then again, the whole point of the book of Acts was to tell a very certain story about very certain things. And it makes sense to us that it would call out the more notable events, right? 
But between every healing, there might have been weeks or months or years where no one got healed. We don't know. So it's hard to draw a conclusion from Acts for how common it really is or how commonly we should expect to see it. Maybe it was rare then, and maybe that's why we don't see it now. Or maybe we do see it and we don't know that we're looking at it because we're not inclined to think about it. It's impossible for us to determine how commonly people are being healed by the gift of healing in the church today. Are you in every place at all times throughout all continents around the world? No. Are you sure that the Internet is capturing all of those events and reporting them accurately for you? Somebody said yes. I need to talk to you about the Internet. My point should be obvious, right? We have no idea. So if we sit here today and say, well, it's never happened to me. Well, a lot of things have not happened to you, but they're still true. Oh, I've never seen it. Well, maybe it's about what you're looking for. Maybe it's more present than you're willing to accept. You know, there were points in Jesus's ministry when even he could not do miracles, we're told, because the people were not believing in him. Could it be that that gift is more present in the body than we've chosen to take advantage of or to avail ourselves of? Could it be that someone in this body actually has the gift and doesn't even know it? I think it's possible. I'm not saying it's likely. But I am saying that from an exegetical point of view, from a theological perspective, we cannot say this gift is gone. And I would venture to say that if we leave open the possibility that it's still in our very midst, we might be more likely to see God put it to work. Next in the list are miracles of mighty works. The gift of miracles. You could say that healing is a miracle, right? What's the distinction? Well, a miracle in this context is any mighty work of God that alters the normal course of natural events. The term miracle is often used to describe any supernatural work of God, but it's also used at times to describe natural occurrences like childbirth, the miracle of a child. Well, I'm not saying that's necessarily a wrong way to use it, but it gets thrown around a lot. Like in my house, it's a miracle if I volunteer to do the dishes. And that actually does, I think, border on supernatural if that actually happens. But once again, in this context, and to be very specific with our definitions, the gift of miracles is something recognizable as a unique work of God. Elijah, for example, had the ability to work miracles. Moses had the ability to work miracles. Paul and the other apostles had the ability to work miracles. And their ability to alter natural events is something given, we're told, for the benefit of the body. Such an important concept to return to time and time again. These are not parlor tricks. They're not something you pull out just to impress somebody or to make them feel happy. There's a serious spiritual purpose in these things. Can believers possess the gift of miracles today? Once more, there is nothing in the Bible that suggests this gift has expired. But it is also clear, just by the name itself, miracle, it is clear these things are the exception to the rule and not the rule. Even in the Bible, even in the, the word of God covering all of human history, we don't see that many miracles. There's only three times in God's history in which miracles are commonplace for the sake of the purposes God had. One of them would be Exodus. One is yet still to come in the time of tribulation. And one happened as Jesus walked the earth and the, the church was formed immediately after he left. But apart from those three moments in history, look at the Bible. There's very rare occurrences of miracles. I'm not saying they didn't happen. I'm saying they're rare. They're isolated. And so they should be expected to be such today. So miracles are not common by definition. And so we should not be surprised if the spirit doesn't hand this gift out willy nilly to every church member or even to everybody. But let's remember, there is a difference between something being rare and something being never. The Bible doesn't say never, but it does indicate this would be rare. And then next, 
Prophecy. The gift of prophecy. Prophecy is supernatural utterance. Supernatural utterance. I know there are debates today, and probably they've always been around, I'm sure, within the church about what is and what is not prophecy. Is the gift still around? Did it end with the closing of the canon and so on? Most of those arguments are two ships passing in the night because really they're arguing about a difference in terms and they don't even know it. There are four types of prophecy in Scripture. First, you can see the word used, prophet or prophecy, to describe someone who is called by God to reveal details of God's future plan for the world and for his people. Like an Isaiah, like a Daniel. Those are prophets. But a prophet can also refer to someone who explains the spiritual meaning of present day or past day events. They're not talking about the future But they're revealing truth about things of the day or things of the past that no one has ever seen before. Like the first martyr, Stephen, in Acts chapter 7. When you look at what he does with his address to the crowd, he relates the entire history of Israel, but he does so to reveal its messianic purpose. And he was stoned for it because no one liked that conclusion. He was a prophet in that respect. Third, A prophet can be a person who sings prophetic praise in a spontaneous expression of thanks to God. They are not commonly a prophet. They don't even think of themselves as a prophet. But something comes upon them in a moment, and in praise to God, what comes out of their mouth has prophetic implications. Good examples of there would be Mary. Mary sang a song as she hears from the angel concerning the coming birth of Christ, and Mary's song is prophetic about what Christ will do in the world. Similarly, Moses and Miriam, both of them sing songs after they come out of the Red Sea and they see what God has done to Pharaoh. And in their joy over being liberated from Egypt, they both sing prophetic songs. And then finally, a prophetic word can be instruction from God delivered to edify and instruct God's people. There was a time in in Acts 11, you may know this if you know the book of Acts, a man named Agabus. Agabus is a man living in Jerusalem, a believer, and he's sent by God from Jerusalem to Antioch, to the believers who are in Antioch, just to give them a word from God. And the word he brings them is that a famine is coming, get ready for it. That's a prophetic word for God, an instruction from God to an individual concerning something that God wants the church to know, to edify the church. Now, when you see the diversity of the prophetic gifts, you should ask, well, which of those four kinds are still present in the church today? All of them, none of them, some of them? Well, the answer is found in Scripture again. Both the writer of Hebrews and John, who wrote Revelation, make clear that the canon of Scripture is now forever closed. So God himself has said in his word that he is finished revealing details of coming events. I'm not saying we know everything we want to know. I'm saying he's done telling us about it. We have what we will have in terms of the written word. No one will come along tomorrow and tell you, I have a new chapter to add to the Bible. We have all the prophecy we're going to get. Three reasons why that's true according to Scripture. First, because God's revelation culminates in the revealing of his son, Jesus Christ, Hebrews tells us in chapter 1. So that Christ himself is the fulfillment of all that has been said. And there is no greater revelation to come. Secondly, the Bible tells us the canon was closed with the death of the last apostle, because they were Christ's appointed representatives to write the canon. With their cessation comes the end of that opportunity to extend the canon. When John died, we were done. I don't need to know anything more about the future, because we've been given it all already. And then finally, there is no new need for prophecy to explain the spiritual meaning of past events. Now I'm speaking there about the second kind of prophecy. 
I don't need to know any more about what the meaning of the past is because Christ is the fulfillment of all of the past. If you want to know the answer to any prophecy of the past, you can always get the answer right by just saying Christ. Even if you don't understand how that's true, you're right. How is that prophecy fulfilled, Christ? How is that one? Christ, 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 Christ. It's always Christ. How that's true may not be immediately obvious, but you're sure the answer has something to do with Christ. So we don't need any more explanation of the past in that respect. So on that basis, the first, second, and third forms of prophecy have ceased with the death of John. Because in all cases, those first three I mentioned have as their edifying purpose the formation of the canon. Paul is saying in his letter that all four are still present. Because in Paul's day, they were. I mean, Paul's an apostle. He's still writing scripture, even in the course of writing this letter. So as long as the apostles were alive and the canon was still being authored, we have all four at work. But today, the first three are no longer there. And we will not see anyone come along with the gift to extend the canon of Scripture, because if they even had the hope to do so, they could only do it by the work of the Spirit, right? And yet the Spirit is the same one who told us it's not going to happen. And the Spirit's not going to contradict himself. So if the Spirit said it's not happening, then we can be assured no one who comes along and says they're offering us new insight about past events or has the ability to extend our knowledge of the future can truly be speaking with the Spirit. I'm not saying you can't teach from Scripture and explain it better. We're talking about new mysteries. So if someone should come to you and offer you a new revelation concerning future events, interpretation of past events, they are, by definition, a false prophet. So if someone like L. Ron Hubbard says he knows the future better or Joseph Smith says he knows the past in a new way, we need to take those two people and set them aside, for they are the false prophets that we know them to be. That leaves only that fourth condition, the prophetic word of instruction to the church. There is nothing in Scripture to suggest that the prophetic word of prophecy has ended. We might expect that God would give someone those abilities in the church from time to time. But, as with all the other gifts, the manifestation of this gift must be self-evidently a work of the Spirit. It needs to be clearly, supernaturally originated. I cannot simply go up to John and say, I've had a word from God. You need to wash my car today. How would you know that I'm telling you the truth? How would you know that I didn't just make that up? Where is their opportunity to see the gift of God at work in that? Where is their edification of the body in that? And if I use a more serious example, John, I think the Lord's been telling me you need to spend more time with your wife. That's a good thing in general, right? There's nothing wrong with that. But again, how do you know I couldn't have just given you that advice in my own power? It has to be self-evidently something from the spirit. So if someone claims to have a prophetic word of instruction for you or I, as from the Lord, we have to test that utterance. We have to test that spirit before we place any of our trust in that person's word. So as Paul says, the same spirit is working in all gifts is the same spirit in me that's in you. So if someone comes up to me as an example and they say, Steve, I have a word from you. And this has happened to me. And it does happen from time to time, especially when I'm somewhere new. You know, people want to come up and and tell you, I know a word for you. Okay, well, let me hear it. And they'll say what they think. And now the question is, is that from the Lord? Well, if they're speaking truly with the spirit of God, then the same spirit that's in them is in me. Paul's already established that. So it would make sense, of course, that if the spirit in them is the one saying these words, then the spirit in me is going to receive them as such and impart upon my conscience the truth of it in some way. How can the spirit do that? Well, it might show me some piece of evidence to support what they're saying. Or they might bring me that word from two different people so that I understand that through that connection, it's not a coincidence. 
I'm hearing it too clearly from too many people. When I first made the decision to get into ministry, it came in conjunction with getting out of the military. And at the time I decided to get out of the military, all I knew was I needed to get out. I didn't really understand why. I'd only been a believer a couple of years, and I had no concept at that point anyway of becoming a Bible teacher. I didn't know anything about the Bible. I don't know what I was thinking, but it wasn't about doing this. But as I'm getting ready to leave the military, if you've ever been in the military, you know there's a process to get you out. It's just as painful to get out as it is to get in. And they make you go through out-processing, which is a whole bunch of bureaucratic stuff to close off your relationship with the military. And you have to go to this place and check out there and go to this place and they sign off a document there and go to this place and pay your bill and whatever. In three different occasions as I'm doing this, talking to just random people who are serving me, when you tell them I'm here to out-process, well, then immediately they know you're leaving the military. And sometimes they strike up a conversation. Oh, what are you going to go do? Where are you going next? You know, that kind of thing. In three different occasions, the conversation didn't go that way. This is how it went. The person would say, are you going into ministry? Another one, are you the one going to be a pastor? Now, about the second one, I'm like, there must be another guy that looks a lot like me going throughout processing at the same time, right? What other explanation is it? Third time it happened, I just sat there stunned. I said, wow, what are the odds? Now, are, are these people gifted with the word of prophecy? No, that's not really my point. My point is, how did I have any reason to think what I was hearing was from God? Because he orchestrated it in such a way that I couldn't ignore it. It planted a seed early that I had to think about for a while. So if the Spirit is truly giving us a word through another member of the church who has the gift of this particular style, then we should expect they should be consistently accurate, that they should be confirmed in one fashion or another in our hearts by the same Spirit. But if they are not confirmed or if they are shown to be inaccurate, we are to stop listening to them forever, forever. They do not have that gift, and whatever might be rattling around in their head, it's not from God. That's why the Jews were commanded in their own law to stone, to kill any person who would claim to be a prophet, but ever made a single mistake. One wrong prophecy, if you claim to be a prophet, got you killed. Because anyone can guess about future events. Anyone can offer personal advice and even get lucky once in a while. I mean, I can guess who's going to win the Super Bowl, and i got a 50-50 chance, right? Doesn't make me a prophet. God's predictions, God's instructions are never wrong. And so if God is truly the one speaking through you, then perfection is the standard we should expect. That is the gift of prophetic word or prophecy. Today we look for people who may have an instruction from the Lord concerning us on some matter in our life. God may do that for us on occasion, and we need to be discerning, which leads us to the next gift distinguishing spirits, or you could say discernment in this case. That is the counterweight to the gift of prophecy. So in the church, you have a gift of giving a word. Now you have someone with a gift to discern whether it is truly from God. It's the ability to know whether a prophetic word is coming from the spirit of God or the spirit of the Antichrist, which is the Bible's term for Satan. The gift in this case acts with prophecy, much like the gift of interpreting tongues works with the gift of tongues. They are matched up for a good reason. So if someone claims to speak prophecy, the vast majority of us may have a difficult time really understanding if what we're hearing is accurate or not. If a false prophet is speaking, they can be very skillful. And if they're skilled enough, they might fool some people. And that's why we need someone in the body who has this gift to understand that utterance. It would not surprise me in God's economy if he doesn't ensure that when he brings someone with a gift of prophecy, he matches that with someone else 
who has the gift of discernment so that we can be protected from all the others out there who might want to come in and mimic the one true gift in the body. Once somebody starts standing up and giving a true gift of prophecy, that's an exciting thing. You know, in the book of Revelation, prophecy is described as that wafer that John eats that tastes like honey in his mouth, but it's sour in his stomach. We love the taste of prophecy. It just gets us all excited about it, right? Until we understand what it really means and what it's really saying about our future. And then and it doesn't always sit so well. But when you have the gift of prophecy in your midst, people who get excited in the flesh over that gift love the thought of being like that person. And they mimic it. And it's so easy to mimic, right? Get an intense look on your face. Go up to someone with a dramatic tone in your voice. John, I had a word from the Lord for you. Well, I mean, at that point, you're sucked in anyway. What comes next? Very easy to do that. God does not want his people fooled by the flesh. He wants us to hear from him and him alone. And so he will give us those who can discern for us the difference. This level of discernment goes beyond the normal again. It's supernatural. A person with this gift would be the kind of person who can call out a false prophet when the rest of the room has totally been sucked in by them. Finally, we have the gifts of tongues and interpreting of tongues. Now, Paul spends an extended period of time teaching on this one gift in chapter 14. So we're going to hold off discussing them in detail until we get there. For now, let's just define what these two things are, both the speaking and the interpreting. And again, we have a complement here, just as we did with prophecy and discernment. In the Greek, the word tongues is glossa, glossa, G-L-O-S-S-A. And it literally is the Greek word for foreign language. You can use the term foreign language instead of the word tongue. If you know how to speak a foreign language, then if we were to say it in Greek, you know a tongue. That's what we're saying. Likewise, interpreting a tongue means understanding a foreign language. So if you grew up a native English speaker, but you took a few Spanish classes in high school or college, and you, you did enough work to pick up on the language, you may not be good at speaking it, but you may be one of those people who, when they hear it spoken, they can more or less understand what's being said. In a sense, you have an ability to interpret that tongue. I'm not saying you have a spiritual gift. I'm just saying in terms of defining the terms, that's what the term means, to be able to understand a foreign language. And then by that understanding of it, be able to tell someone else what you heard, interpreting it. We're going to wait till chapter 14 to understand how and why this gift is given in the body of Christ. For now, I just want to note that all the references to gifts that exist in 1 Corinthians and all the places Paul talks about gifts, there is only one spiritual gift that Paul always includes in every list that he makes of spiritual gifts. The one gift that's repeated every time, and it's the only one that's repeated every time, is the gift of tongues. That should tell you something about the importance of this gift in the purpose Paul had in writing. And we'll come back to that, as I said, in chapter 14. Speaking of the lists of gifts, we're going to end today looking at the list from the perspective of what it means that there is a list. This list in verses 8 through 10 is one of several such lists in the New Testament. He gives multiple lists in 1 Corinthians. This is just one of them. And then again in Romans 12 and again also in Ephesians 4, Paul makes lists of spiritual gifts. In every case, the list is at least a little different. And in some cases, it's very different. On three different occasions in 1 Corinthians alone, Paul gives different lists of gifts. Now, in this case, Paul mentions nine spiritual gifts, which we've already done. Word of wisdom, knowledge, faith, healing, miracles, prophecy, distinguishing spirits or discernment, tongues, and interpreting of tongues. That's nine. 
If you compare that list to the one you find in Romans 12, there are a few similarities, but there's also a lot of differences. In Romans, this is what you hear. Prophecy, so that's similar. But then service, teaching, exhortation, giving, leadership, mercy. None of those are in the list we just looked at. And if you look at Ephesians 4, you find still another list. There, it's apostle, prophet, well, that's similar. Evangelist, pastor, teacher. How do you reconcile these things? What are the way, how are we to understand the, the reality of these different lists? What does it mean? Are they merely additive? Do you just kind of lump them all together? Well, if you do that, you're at the risk of committing an exegetical error. Because if you just lump these lists together, you ignore the context in which each was given. In other words, we have to ask ourselves, did Paul himself intend for the church to take these three lists, which were written in different decades to different geographic locations for different purposes? Did he intend for us to take all these things and lump them together to create the super list of spiritual gifts? We have to know what did Paul intend when he wrote these things? And if he did include these things to be lumped together, then we might ask ourselves, well, why did he repeat a few across all of the lists? If he knew in advance that the church would lump all these together to get the final tally, why bother repeating anything? Perhaps he had another purpose in these lists. Well, let's step back and let's look at these lists in their context briefly. First, looking at the list in Ephesians, that list, remember the list I just mentioned, apostles, pastors, teachers, evangelists, that list is clearly different from all the others. The Ephesians list is not a list of gifts at all. Paul doesn't even call them such. It is a list of positions, of roles in the church. Apostle, teacher, pastor, evangelist, prophet. Now, obviously, those roles are closely associated with spiritual gifts that enable people to be effective in those roles. But that's not a given in all cases. Someone can be an evangelist without having the gift of evangelism. Someone can be a teacher without having the gift of teaching. So it's not a requirement that you have these gifts. And so these things are not a statement of what is found gifting wise. It's a statement of what is found role wise. Then if you look at the context of Ephesians four, you'll find that what Paul is actually talking about is that God raises up these role players in the body to equip the body for the work of service. So in Ephesians four, he's talking about how God using leadership in the body to equip us for greater service. So we can't take any of the ones in Ephesians four and add them to any list of gifts. Now, again, I'm not saying there aren't gifts behind these roles. I'm saying this isn't where you go to find those gifts. Now, moving to Romans, Paul's topic in Romans 12, the context of Romans 12 is how the church should regard one another within the body of Christ. Paul teaches, don't think too highly of yourself in Romans 12. And the reason he says you can't think too highly of yourself is because he says we all have a part to play. There's no one who's indispensable and there's no one who's more important. Now, in that context, that's his mindset, right? As he's going down that thought, Paul mentions a few spiritual gifts to make an example of the ways members of the body are in service to one another. In fact, if you go look at Romans 12 at some point on your own, you'll notice that Paul prefaces each gift with the preposition if. And he says it this way, if you have the gift of teach, well, then teach. And if you have the gift of service, get busy serving somebody. It's obvious then, as you look at Romans 12, that what Paul's doing is he's just listing a few representative gifts as an example to make his larger point. His point is not to say, here's your definitive list of gifts for the church in Rome. 
What's his larger point? Everyone is supposed to do something to benefit everyone else. And no one is more important. Do you see Paul's pattern emerging here? He often lists spiritual gifts as examples to make larger points in some specific context. So now back to 1 Corinthians. What is Paul's context in this list in 1 Corinthians 12? His point is that a diverse number of gifts are a blessing in the body, and yet they all originate from the same spirit. Go back and look at the list I just read out of 1 Corinthians. What ends almost every single item on the list? But the same spirit, but the same spirit, but the same Lord, but the same spirit. What do you think his point is? They're all coming from the same spirit. His point is not, oh, by the way, here's nine gifts. Write them down and log them so you know where they are. There are nine examples. There are nine examples given to prove a larger point. What is the larger point? You cannot look at a gifting and say that person is more of the spirit because they have a better gift than I do. You cannot say that because that is not true. The things Paul chooses to include in these lists are representative of his larger point. And so as you look across all of these lists, wherever they occur, even in the book of First Corinthians, which I've already pointed out, has three different lists all on its own. We have to start to see this not as an authoritative inventory that we add up and then say there and there only are the gifts of the body. But rather, we need to understand that God gifts as he wills for whatever purpose he intends. And even if you do add them all together, we still have no reason to think we've arrived at an exhaustive list. There's nothing in the text itself that says here and only here are all the gifts of the body. That is an assumption we've made and we brought it to the text. In fact, it would make sense to conclude that Paul didn't give us a complete list because he can't give us a complete list because there's no way to list them all because they're infinitely available to God. Now, I'm not saying everything you do or want to do is a gift. Underwater basket weaving is not a gift in the church as far as I can tell. We can certainly say that there's some finite universe of gifts God may be working with. What I am saying is we don't have a list. And why do we need a list anyway? If we have a list, would that help us do more or less? Would that encourage us more or less? If we started nitpicking who has what gift and who doesn't, are we focusing on what they're intended for or have we missed the point? Therefore, to answer the question, how many spiritual gifts are there in the body? The answer you have from Scripture is we don't know. While we know some of them because they've been listed, That doesn't mean we know all of them. Can someone possess, for example, the gift of worship? It's not on any of the lists. Can someone have the gift of hospitality? It's not on any of the lists. How about the gift of prayer? Did you know the gift of prayer is not in the Bible? But are we denying that there are people who have a gift to pray? The real question is whether an ability of any kind in the body glorifies God in the way that it sets apart from the common giftings of individuals and edifies the body in its intended purpose. If I find something going on in the body of Christ that is clearly of God and for the people, it's a spiritual gift whether it's enumerated in the Bible or not. Each person is to be certain in their own heart what God has called and gifted you to do, and then do it. Let's not waste time debating on what is or what isn't a gift or trying to equate one to one another. How ironic, really, because Paul's whole point in 1 Corinthians is stop measuring each other on the basis of what gifts you have. Isn't that his point? None of these lists are intended to be comprehensive. And likewise, we can't be dogmatic about it. 
In the end, it's not the form of a gift that matters. It's the way it glorifies the Lord and edifies the body. Next time, we're going to pick up again in verse 11, and we're going to continue in our study of gifts, and we're going to look at where Paul goes from here. But as you go out from here, if you've always thought, when I look at the list, I can't find anything that I think God is working in my life to accomplish, then you might have been the victim of this strict constructionist mentality about gifts. You may be one of these people that has been ruled out from the list of gifts because we've treated it as a definitive list. Think more broadly. Is there something about your life that demonstrates God at work in such a way that it glorifies him and edifies the body and is clearly of him? And when you know that thing, serve in it and watch what happens. Don't let anybody define you out of an opportunity to serve God. Let's go to Lord in prayer. Dear Father, I pray, Father, that our giftings are self-evident. First to us so that we would know them and use them and not let them lay dormant. But then secondly, Father, that our giftings would be put to work for the benefit of this body. And not everything we may choose to do is a gifting, Father, and not everything we do well is a gifting, and we know that. Let us put our time and our effort into those things that truly glorify you, knowing that as we each play that instrument that you've assigned, the collective sound pleases your ears. Lord, I also pray we'd have Mercy, grace, patience for each other in this effort of learning and using our gifts. We wouldn't make perfection a standard. That we wouldn't cause anyone who, who serves in the weakness of their abilities and, and, and within the limits of what you've given them to feel any less a member of this body, any less valued. That we'd never turn away the, the heart that wants to serve simply because we found a more professional way to get something done. Let us make sure we're building up people and not the building or something else of lesser value. Lord, I ask that you would give us that heart, a heart that wants to serve and wants to receive service and wants all these things for your glory. We pray these things, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen.